Squealy Dan, as they say. Squealy Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that would be a great Halloween costume. So I could be Squealy Dan. You oh could be God. Squealy Dan. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Danielle Yet, and today we're continuing our series with resident ICS senior member in theology, Nick Ansel. Nick teaches many evocative courses on topics ranging from wisdom literature to evil to gender and sexuality to classical and open theism and beyond. Nick has a gift for seeing the Bible as a living word, so we're excited in this series to spend time chatting with Nick about some of the ways the Bible comes alive for him. Last time we started at the beginning by asking, How do we read the Bible? Today, we're going to have a closer look at the themes of law and liberation. So let's get started. Junior members at ICS all start their studies here in two foundational courses. One is Reformational Philosophy, which we recently spent some time talking to Bob about, and the other is Biblical Foundations. These courses work side by side to put the main convictions and influences of the Reformational philosophical tradition on the table. That is, that both scripture and the world itself reveal to us who we are, who God is, and what life is about. Nick Ansel, ICS senior member in theology, teaches this Biblical Foundations course every year. Today, he's joining us for the next installment in our series on what these Biblical Foundations are. This time, we're talking about law and liberation. Nick, uh, before we we start with the questions, I just wanted to tell you that uh, over the years, as, as your student and in formal and informal conversations, You've been key uh, to helping me understand the relation between liberation and law. As a, as a child of liberation theology, I have to work through theology very hard to be able to find a space for law within a faith tradition that I understand as ultimately liberating. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to you about this here in the context of the podcast. So in order to kind of begin that conversation, I want to 
pick up what we left off last time. Uh, there were a couple of things that you mentioned that really resonated with me and I wanted to talk to you about. The first one is you mentioned an opposition or a tension between commandment and call and all of that within that framework of understanding law uh, in our tradition. Along the way, you also mentioned something like a, a, an attention or opposition between something being compulsory and being compelling. And you map those out uh, just briefly with call and commandment. So could you talk a bit more about those terms within the framework of that larger conversation of law and liberation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. So, I mean, that distinction between something that's being compulsory or being compelling and which actually I'd not made that distinction before, not, not knowingly, actually. Um, so now I'm going to be making that for, you know, forever. <laughs> um, those two words have a very different vibe to our ears at the moment. Something that's compelling is uh, normally the way we use that is you, if you find something compelling, it means that your own heart and will are naturally deeply attracted to what you're hearing or what you're seeing or what's going on. If something's compulsory, it easily feels like an imposition. And then to use that distinction with respect to law and biblical law or God's law, is there a way of reading God's law? I mean, the material in the Torah uh, or you know, in the law codes even that um, could be compelling, could be life-giving, in that sense could be profoundly attractive so that we can make sense of why, let's say David could say, I love your law. Why would you say, I love your law? What's behind that? What kind of spirituality is behind that? So to sort of get into this, I think I like to go back to this distinction between gift and call, which came up last time. And uh, there's a connection between law or good ways of hearing the word law and the call side to the gift and call. So how can law be a gift? How can law be seen as an avenue of grace and thus freedom, liberation, life, and so forth, rather than straightforwardly, simplistically being seen as in opposition to life? Is there a way to hear the language of law as positive, but at the same time, to avoid the use of law that would be about the compulsory and the imposition of a will on somebody else, supposedly for our, our own good. So going back to the idea of gift and call, I find for myself, I go back to the idea of breath. And I think that this takes us right back to the beginning of the scriptures. Um, but breath, the breath of life, we receive the breath of life, entering into our bodies, ourselves, and that comes with the call to breathe, to live. But the call to live comes as a gift, it's a blessing, but it's one in which we participate. And really, participate is too weak a word because this is life, right? And this is our life. So it's gifted and called. You've got to keep the idea of call connected to gift. So going back to the scriptures, I, it's, I think it's worth underlining. This isn't just some kind of groovy image that allows me the freedom to say what I want and believe what I want. 
this is a fundamental biblical image, the image of breath. First four chapters of the Bible have four different images of breath. First of all, you have the Ruach of Elohim in Genesis 1, usually translated as the Spirit, sometimes translated as a wind from God, a mighty wind. So I think the best translation, this is the Spirit of God, but there are connotations of a mighty wind. So this is the breath of God, which is powerful in Genesis 1. Uh, in Genesis 2, you see uh, not just Elohim, but Elohim Yahweh breathing into the nostrils of Ha'adam, the earth creature, who then becomes a living being. That's God's own breath. So you move from the Ruach of God to the breath into the very nostrils. It's a different word in Hebrew, but it's the breath theme continues. Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, God shows up, many translations will say, at the breezy time of day. And it's, it's a very interesting image used because this is a gentle, I mean, depending on how you interpret it, this is a gentle cooling breeze at the end of a hot day. That's how God shows up straight after the um, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis 3. Genesis 4, there's a breath theme. Because in the first murder, Cain and Abel, the name Abel, which is I mean, in Hebrew, uh, Havel, Hevel, the V and B are related in Hebrew, right? So the name Abel has connotations, at least, of the breath of life, which is snuffed out by Cain, whose name also has connotations, perhaps of force or something like that. So you have a breath theme in each of these four chapters. This is not insignificant. And so life has a certain power and a certain vulnerability, but the kind of the gift call dynamic is there. And it fits with the idea, as mentioned last time, that the first time God, so to speak, asks something of human beings or says something to human beings, fill the earth is a benediction it's not a mandate so that means that gift and call are absolutely two sides of the same coin here and it's important to keep those two together when you move to the material of the the torah and to what do become commandments and so forth later on that you read these in the light of the primordial benediction and blessing I wanted to change a bit the second question in light of what you just brought up and the, the images of breath and life. And, yeah. and I, I think it creates a, a nice connection between life, liberation, and call. Right. So you've done the work on life and call. Now I want us to go to the next step and then you to illustrate a bit more the connection between life and liberation. So like within your own understanding of liberation as it's articulated by these texts, how is that connection expressed in, in that idea of life and breath of lives through the lens of these four moments of breath that you, that you mentioned to us? One of the places that, that many people will go to in scripture, the theme of the liberation will be Exodus. So let's situate the Exodus narrative canonically. Just to recapitulate very briefly another theme in Genesis, because 
the beginning of the scriptures really set us up. So it's very interesting in Genesis 1 that you get the call of God, you get all the let there be, let dry land appear. And this is seemingly addressed to the waters, to the deep. You get a little four echo to the Exodus narrative here. And let there be light is the first let there be. The light, I would argue, is God's glory, or at least has strong connotations of God's glory, right? Shining not into the darkness, but out of the darkness. And that's a whole separate discussion. The sun and the moon reflect, you could say, the glory of God. They're described as ruling. To rule is to reflect the glory of God and to bless. Then the call to human beings to fill the earth means in its deepest meaning to fill with the glory of God. And this is about God becoming all in all, filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, the point is this. When you get to the Exodus, the Israelites are leaving Egypt, leaving slavery, and there's this Red Sea. And there's no way through. And God creates a path through the waters. Let the dry land appear. When we read that, it's got a creational backdrop, which you pick up. This is very, very significant. God creates a path from death to life through the waters. This is wisdom, which is connected to creation as well as new creation. There are death throes. There are birth pangs. Think of the Exodus narrative beginning with the midwives. Literally, the birth pangs of the Israelite women taken up into this story. And the midwives midwife the presence of God. So Exodus is to do with wisdom, and it's to do with apocalyptic. You have the introduction of those two controversial categories. You have them in full force, as it were, in the Exodus narrative. So the movement from slavery to freedom is an apocalyptic transition. It's wisdom as well. And the Israelites leave slavery. But I mean, as it's often said, you can get Israel out of Egypt, but can you get the Egypt out of Israel? It's like they want to go back. Now, the pathway closes up. You might think, well, that's in order to judge the Egyptians. The closing up is that the Israelites can't go back, it seems to me. They're being led into freedom. What is freedom? Paul in Galatians says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, I believe. So freedom is not just freedom from, it's freedom for. So what is the freedom for? That relates to the gift and call. So wisdom in scripture, in a nutshell, is not about order, it's about the path, finding the way to life, which is the way of life. And it's not just finding, it may mean creating, co-creating with God. And this is about God becoming all in all. Paul talks about God being and becoming all in all. That process that we are called into as partners with God is the dynamic of freedom in a nutshell.
Thank you, Nick. I, there, there's so many things I want to pick up on, but the first one is with the images of the movement through to freedom. So the image of, of journeying as being the operative image to move from oppression to freedom, that's one of the things that brings back to me kind of memories of liberation theology the most, because in, kind of in the research that I've done, even though a lot of authors tend to present Christ, the liberator, or Christ kind of just breaking out of bondage as the mobilizing image for liberation theology, the original image was Christ the pilgrim. So someone that was journeying with people. And that idea of letting things happen as the journey went on was key to articulating what liberation theology thought about uh, the role of history and the role of what was coming into the end of days, what, what it meant for people living in real-life situations of oppression and, and despair. So all of that resonates with me greatly. So going back to images that you were mentioning, that connection between Genesis and Exodus, or understanding that order in a way that allows us to read the text better, is one of the things that I see liberation theology communities doing. Uh, bringing back those stories, putting them together, and developing images that allow them to kind of resonate with the text and to move towards freedom. So that's where I will go into, into my next question here, which is something that you mentioned in our last conversation uh, here at Critical Faith, and you've alluded to before today, the idea that kind of the alignment of the, the story of the text and the story of the reader of the text is important in being able to hear the call of the text. So I wanted you to kind of speak more about that process of what it means to find a way into the text through that alignment of the stories and uh, also kind of the disposition that the person or the community needs to have in order to approach the text in a good light. Right. A theme I've been thinking about quite a lot in recent years is how to interpret the biblical idea of the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. and. I've come to the view that that saying itself is a saying that calls for wisdom and calls forth wisdom in terms of how it's heard. That that phrase itself is a call to discernment. It's a call to wisdom. So the standard reading is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is, oh, that's about religious awe. And then religious awe can easily play into an obedience theology when in fact, the references to obeying God in our translations are almost invariably references in Hebrew to hearing and heeding, really hearing. So I would go with the call to discern, because God wants us to hear God's heart and for our hearts to beat along with God's heart and vice versa. So fear of Yahweh as the beginning of wisdom. Let's look for a narrative unpacking of that because most of scripture is narrative. Let's start with Moses. Moses encounters God in the burning bush episode, is afraid, but doesn't stick with fear. Moses becomes a friend of God, scripture says. Now you have the face-to-face -face relationship between God and Abraham in Genesis 18, 22. With Moses, you get the face-to-face -face with God. But it's so close, it's actually in numbers, it's said to be mouth to mouth. Now, surely that is echoing Genesis 2, 
you know, God is so close that he's breathing into our nostrils. It's an intimate friendship. And Moses has this friendship with God, but the people back away. They're too terrified to go up the mountain and they want Moses to be a mediator for them. And they want God to speak to Moses and for Moses to speak to them. But they don't want a direct encounter with God because they are afraid. And uh, this actually has an impact on the way that the Torah is articulated to Israel via Moses, because God takes the fear into account. Now, I think that God seeks friendship with human beings, not in a condescending way. What God wants and desires with us is this deep resonance of the spirit. And the beginning of wisdom may be fear, but the pathway to life in wisdom is the pathway to friendship with God. And some people hear that language and they think that it's trivializing the solemnity of the covenant and that it's getting rid of awe. Okay, I want to challenge those people. If ever there's an experience of awe, it's the true intimacy of true deep friendship. There's nothing trivial about this. If you want to deepen in the right way your spirituality, pursue friendship with God. So the resonance. It's deeply part of the biblical narratives. And in that sense, to be fellow travelers with God, you think, how can you be a fellow traveler with God? Isn't God a fixed point of reference? You know, how about we let Jesus show us what God is like as Christians? And what does Jesus do? He precisely travels with his disciples, right? They are his fellow travelers, they are traveling with God in the flesh, and God is traveling with them. Now, the Israelites that are too afraid to get close to God, who want there to be a mediator, namely Moses. So Moses gets to be a friend with God, but the Israelites don't get to be a friend, friends with God at this point. That's a desire for a hierarchy and for mediation. Now, there are many theologies and spiritualities that would have you believe that accepting a hierarchy and accepting mediation humbly is the way to go. In the scriptures, this is not what God wants, but it is God's accommodation because of the fear of the people. But in wisdom, we're called to move beyond that fear, not beyond awe, but beyond that fear that's there in the beginning that makes people back away from God and want to have somebody else to plug the gap, as it were. That should not be our model for ideal spirituality. And it doesn't need to be. And for those of us that do have a longing for something different, the scriptures give us permission to pursue that. The conversation about friendship reminds me of what you were mentioning at the beginning around call and compelling and all, all that connection. Because when you think of a friend is someone that you will call to assist you, and you assume that he or she is capable of assisting you. So it is ultimately a positive relation. It's not about coercing the friend into doing something. It's about believing that the friend is capable of being a partner, a, a, a cooperator in the process. So seeing God in those terms and, and Jesus in the journey in those terms just opens up possibilities for me as I think of all of these narratives that you've mentioned so far. But I wanted to, to shift the conversation a bit and talk about 
traditions, Christian traditions in particular, than arguably have occluded all of these aspects of the message. So through time, we, we, we lose sense of that liberation kind of power of the text. We lose sense of that friendship with God. We lose sense of the life component that undergirds the scriptural passages. And we tend to go into kind of more lockdown, oppressive readings of the Bible. So the question is twofold for you. On one side, what are our tools or the tools that we find in the scripture to counter that tendency of traditions? And the second one is, is it really possible for us to come together as a community and preserve that? Or are we always destined to occlude that liberating message? So that's that's a... A wonderful and an important question, I think. Of course, there are such things as liberating traditions, and there are many, many of them, and most traditions will have liberating elements. But there can be such a thing as a, when traditions close things down, then the tradition itself will take on a kind of uh, compulsory heavy character and will try and dominate other traditions. So that when we think of the word tradition, we're often thinking of dominant traditions that do try and dominate us in that particular way. So there are living traditions, but there are dominating traditions, and it's important to distinguish between them. It's got a lot to do with our expectations when it comes to scripture. If we still approach scripture in terms of fear, then it's easy for us to expect to find what we don't want to find, and then to feel that it's our job just to kind of um, suck it up. And the call to suck it up becomes almost a hallmark for, well, it's got to be true because I don't really want this. In the last podcast, I talked about the Buckley's mixture fallacy. So how do we find liberation where there are certain oppressive traditions or dominant traditions that really give us a certain default reading, which is going to close that down before it even opens up. There are, there are a couple of things I found. Look for anomalies. Anomalies in the default reading that you find yourself having. Just be aware of things that don't really quite fit with that and just allow them to speak and see what happens. Awareness of anomalies is the hallmark of really good research science, by the way. Bad scientists are into fitting in rather than belonging, and they will take the dominant paradigm and they will do their best to make the world fit in that so they can fit in with their colleagues. Really good scientists are aware of anomalies and allow anomalies to speak because sometimes an anomaly will open up a pathway to a new paradigm. That's very important in terms of being aware of your own experience, the things that you experience that, that don't quite fit with what you're ex expecting. In paying attention to yourself, pay attention to the anomalous within and don't allow a, a dominant voice to override that within yourself. So in scripture, look for anomalies. I mean, I'm lucky I get to sort of work on this. But there are other ways that you can do this without getting sort of technical or detailed or cracking open the Hebrew lexicon or, or whatever. I'll give you an example of something that I haven't finished thinking through myself yet. So perhaps it, it may, it's a better example for that in a way, in terms of exploring a certain possibility that's at odds with the default reading. 
So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, have not been my favorite books in scripture. I accept them as part of scripture and I trust that the word of life is there. But that's been less immediately apparent for me with those books. So I decided I would spend some time with them a few years ago, and I'm still sort of thinking things through. You know, the banishment of the non-Israelite wives and children narrated in Ezra and also in Nehemiah. I mean, the narrative has these women and children sort of out in the, in the rain at a certain point, and the wives and the children are banished. Same in, in uh, Nehemiah. So... How to read a narrative, because a narrative in a biblical book is not necessarily approving of what's being narrated. And we have, we're called to exercise some discernment in terms of what kind of narrative is this. And Nehemiah ends up with sort of Nehemiah sort of saying, well, God, I hope that I've be, I'll be remembered as a good person. It's like it, it's just very, it's very underwhelming, the, en the ending. It's, it's intriguing, right? It's not strident. It's kind of there's a sense of kind of have I lost have I lost the plot? I hope I haven't lost the plot. It's kind of halfway towards Ecclesiastes, you know. It's like the kind of wisdom has been lost kind of thing. That's how I hear this. And you go to Malachi, and God at a certain point there says, "I hate divorce." Now this is from the same time period as Ezra and Nehemiah. Is this not referring precisely to the compulsory imposed divorce that happens under Ezra and Nehemiah? It's like in Malachi, God is saying the people are there. They're not hearing what God is really saying. And there's all this weeping that happens in the temple, God says. And it, God doesn't accept this as, as genuine. So interesting, you go back into Ezra, and just before the divorce happens, you have Ezra, you know, kind of locks himself in the temple and is weeping. It starts to feel like Malachi is reflecting on the Ezra narrative and giving us a key to understand what's going on. So it's not like the call to discernment is, oh, you have to be a genius to figure this out or something like that. You just need to, like, relax, open your ears, your heart to hear what God might be saying. So you could have a critique of the Ezra and Nehemiah response, and Malachi is one of God's prophets, picks that up, and puts that pretty sharply. That opens up the scriptures again to being word of life. And then you can go back and read the end of Nehemiah, and it's, it, it reads differently. So I'm still working on this. I mean, but I think changing your expectations and then allowing scripture to give you new expectations is one way to go. This is great. Uh, so one of one of the things that I learned from Paul Ricoeur, who is the person that I read for my dissertation, is something similar to what you are saying around the the tone, how to assess God's tone in different biblical passages. And his response is it's a philosophical response, but still it gives us it gets us somewhere. It is is intertextual. So you go to different narratives and you you adjust the tone according to those narratives and you and that that's a never ending process as it were and one of the the places where that that lands more naturally is hearing the way in which Jesus interprets or reads scripture, which is one of the things that Nick you usually 
mention to us uh, as we go through your classes. Like, pay attention to the way that Jesus interacts with the text and how Jesus interprets the text to the audiences that he encounters. So that is kind of my question for you. I want to I wanna hear more about the, the way in which that process happens or how you see it unfolding. Yeah, great question. I mean, the way Jesus reads scripture is fascinating. And I'm amazed in a way that this doesn't receive more attention than it has. It seems that we have a tendency to just fit Jesus in with what we think is the right way to read scripture. You know, and you, you end up paying lip service to Jesus. And you, at some level, you realize you're paying lip service. So you try and counter that by making out that Jesus is absolutely magnificent and totally different from us. And, but it's putting Jesus on a pedestal. But that's in order to keep Jesus in his place, namely not his true place, but in the place we're trying to put him. And it gets very convoluted, right? So we know in the Gospels that that Jesus is not the warrior Messiah, does not represent a coercive God. So we just construct the Jesus that will return along those lines. And then the Jesus that we're actually told about in the Gospels ends up playing a minor role in relation to this wider framework that we're constructing. So it's like the future for Christianity is just to allow Jesus to actually be central and to follow Jesus is really what it's all about. So how does Jesus read scripture? I mean, I wrote a, a long essay on this, which was published on Jesus in relation to the Sabbath. And the saying, you know, humanity is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for humanity. Now, there are ways of reading that that miss the point. You know, as if it's kind of, well, don't get too legalistic. And it's like, as if Jesus is saying something fairly trivial. What's being said is, is radical. And it does pick up on the themes that we've been talking about. The Sabbath is made to serve human beings and to serve freedom. This is not limiting the sacred nature of the Sabbath as if it's just one more day amongst others and we just get to obey God the whole time, including on Sunday. That's not <laughs> what's being said. It's that this sacred day serves us and reveals its sacred character by serving and blessing us, because that's what God does. The meaning of the Sabbath, it's given to us to bless us, and in blessing us and serving us, it reveals and opens up the presence of God. This is the sacred. This is the nature of the sacred. You don't get more sacred, really, in the Hebrew Bible and in the traditions that Jesus lived within and embodies and assumes in when he talks to his contemporaries. You don't get more sacred than the Sabbath apart from God. And if the Sabbath is made for us, and reveals God to us in that way, how scripture is sacred to us, parallels that. Jesus opens up that way of looking at things. But in opening that up, he's actually capturing what is already there in the Hebrew Bible, in the, in the, in the scriptures of his time, and presents an image of God and the way God exercises power that is so different from what we've come to expect. No wonder when we turn to the scriptures, we cannot hear 
the word of life. So we have these strategies of pushing God further away and having mediators because we're stuck at that first stage, fear of God. We surely see God revealed in Jesus, but we turn Jesus into a Moses figure, a mediator that comes between us and God. So our image of God hasn't changed. We just stick Jesus in the middle. And it's like, no, Jesus is the word made flesh who travels with us, who tells us the Sabbath is made to bless us. The scriptures are given to bless us and points the way out of our religious slavery to freedom. Thank you, Nick for being with us today. You've given us much to, to think about and we look forward to the next few conversations. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for your time and we'll hear from you next week. Thanks very much. I look forward to it. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? Well, Mark, my pleasure this week is also going to afford you pleasure. <laughs> tangentially related to the fact that I have gotten a new computer and the saga of your discontent with my computing abilities is now over and the crowd goes wild that's that's <laughs> what the sports analogy would be um but in addition to that one of the things i've been doing there's been various like publication things that we do at ics so we have like our newsletter perspective which i don't design but you know get things to a usable state and then send it to a designer Another thing that we do is we have our annual report every year. So usually I do the same thing. I compile the things and then send it off to our designer. I just decided to do it myself for this year. So I'm getting back into like, you know, designing a brochure basically. And I was just kind of realizing like, I do love doing that kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. it's very kind of nitpicky work. Like you have to be very detail oriented and you're constantly going over like the same thing and like tweaking it slightly or like moving something around. And then that changes like all these other things that you had and like trying to format things consistently without, you know, making things harder for yourself somehow. But I was just realizing it's like, I, it had for some reason been a while since I could like appreciate actually doing that or kind of have the time to like spend time doing that kind of a project. So mm. it's like a multi-page little booklet thing. Um, and I was just remembering as I was doing it, how much I actually loved doing it. So that is my pleasure. So, so, so much design, intelligent design, even you might say. Well, let's not go so far as intelligent design, but it is design. <laughs> okay. I'll stop it there. I'll stop with design. <laughs> uh, what about you? Well, it is your pleasure this week. So my pleasure is extremely simple. It is tortilla chips. I think like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, like is there any food that is more versatile than a tortilla chip 
you know, like explain. Well, okay. So a week ago I made chili and I had a lot of chili for my lunches. Right. And like, what's better with chili than a tortilla chip? You know, it's true. I mean, arguably cornbread, but I see your point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, they didn't have cornbread and cornbread, <laughs> like it's not as versatile, you know, you don't want to eat cornbread with everything. Tortilla chips, you do want to eat with everything. Like I have leftover tacos, tortilla chips. I want some salsa, tortilla chips, sour cream, tortilla chips, you know? Just straight up sour cream and tortilla chips. <laughs> I mean, if I don't have any salsa, maybe, but it's kind of like... Mark. <laughs> but um, like other chips, you know, I'm hungry and I want, I try to eat them as a meal replacement or something, which I obviously shouldn't do. And then you end up feeling gross. Tortilla chips, for some reason, they're not gross. They, I don't feel gross. And there, there's obviously different tiers of like, some of them are not like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to cheap out on my tortilla chips, you know? <laughs> They're actually PC, uh, President's Choice. Their bougie tortilla chip is really good. I don't, I don't know what it's called. It's like sea salt. Also, like if it's President's Choice, it's probably going to be good. If it's President's Choice, it's Mark's Choice. That's right. That's right. Got to go get my torch. <laughs> and, I, and, and oh, no. tortillas also present me with the ability to make the joke the occasion to make the joke, really, I have the ability <laughs> of torts and making talking about tortious claims every time I eat a tortilla, which <laughs> provides everyone pleasure, obviously. That's it for our show this week. If you're interested in hearing more from Nick and in joining any of his upcoming courses, which are all now available remotely, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow Hector as Acero F underscore Hector. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.